Welcome to Happy Hour, a podcast where I interview and highlight AAPI creatives. My name is Melissa Cho, and I'm a 21-year-old Taiwanese-Chinese-American, multimedia journalist, documentarian, and digital content video editor. In the second episode of Happy Hour, I talk to Isha Punja, the 24-year-old founder behind Hut Mentality, an ethical clothing brand sourced by indigenous and rural artisans in India. The clothes are made by hand and natural materials, such as organic cotton being hand-printed with vegetable dyes. Her work has been notably featured in British Vogue twice, and two years ago she got to showcase her designs at New York Fashion Week. And I thought it was like a scam at first, so my dad actually had to go through and make sure that it wasn't a scam because it seemed like such a great opportunity. Recently, her business experienced some controversy on the video sharing app TikTok when she defended herself from someone's comment saying, quote, Why do you put white people in our clothes, though? Before you hear my full chat with Isha and her dog Rocky, which you'll hear several times in the background, I invite you to grab a drink of your choice and let's spend happy hour together. My second ever guest is Isha Punja, the 24-year-old founder of Hut Mentality, an ethical clothing brand sourced by indigenous and rural artisans in India. Isha was born and raised in Irvine, California, and attended UC Berkeley as an economics major. When freshman year ended, she felt this void inside her of not being able to fulfill her creative ambitions and went through a period of depression. Instead of pursuing an internship where she would probably be working at a bank, she ended up taking the summer off after sophomore year and traveled with her mom to India. That summer was a breath of fresh air for her, and from our conversation that you'll hear in a bit, this amazing mother-daughter escapade was how Hut Mentality was born. It's now been four years since Isha started her business, and her designs have been featured in British Vogue and at New York Fashion Week. With India still facing its second COVID-19 wave, I was curious to find out how Isha's business was doing. And especially because all her artisans are based there, I wanted to learn how she and her team have been weathering this pandemic-related storm. But before we get into that, I started off our chat asking her to take us to the very beginning, when she decided to start her own business as a young entrepreneur. Isha, I'm so excited that you're one of my first ever guests on Happy Hour. So we also worked together before. <laughs> That's why I reached yeah. out to you. Uh, why don't we get started by you telling us how you decided to start your business? Okay, so I actually started Hot Mentality in my junior year of college. I remember that, well, I've always been a very creative person. And even from as long as I can remember, um, I would do like really random artsy things. Like I would take the little grass things in sushi and like staple it to my wall. Um, or I would get those, I asked my parents for those little mini sewing machines and I would go and get fabric from Joann's and like stitch little dresses and stuff for myself, which were terrible, but I would still do it. So from a young age, I've always been really interested in anything related to like arts. Um, but I guess I always, you know, knew the importance of education and all of that. So I studied very hard and I never really got to, um, you know, put a lot of attention into creative endeavors throughout high school. Um, so I get to Berkeley and I'm majoring in economics, which is this very strenuous, um, you know, very kind of dry major. And I was just doing a lot of number crunching. And the summer after my freshman year of college, I actually took up this internship in Singapore and I was doing stock analysis at this bank. And it was all really great stuff for my resume, but there was this hole inside of me that felt very empty. And I think this had been a part of me that was 
I, I had finally, like that part of me that was yearning for my creative fulfillment had finally caught up with me. So I was very depressed that summer after my freshman year. And I remember I was just thinking like, wow, like I'm in college, like I'm a year into college and I still don't really feel like I know what I want to do yet. Here I am doing economics, doing investment banking internships, like working on this path that's ultimately going to lead me to go into some sort of you know, economic type job or some working at a bank, which I knew in my heart of hearts was not what I was supposed to do, you know, in life. So the summer after that, I went through, you know, sophomore year and still kind of conflicted, not really sure what I wanted to do. And the summer after sophomore year, my mom, who's always been, you know, very encouraging of me to pursue my my passions and my hobbies and what I want to do in life and to not be led astray by my perfectionism. She told me to, you know, take, take the summer off and not do an internship like everyone else at Berkeley and to go travel with her and to, you know, have fun and to just take a break from everything. So we went to India together, just me and her. And we normally, so I'm from the Southern part of India, but I, we actually decided to travel around the Northern regions of India this time. Um, so we literally backpacked around, um, you know, Gujarat, this very Northern tip of India, very, very close to the border of Pakistan, about 200 miles South of the border to Pakistan. And it's so remote there that you, we were staying in a very small kind of hotel and to get from one town to another, it would be a six hour drive where there was nothing. It was just for as long as you can see, it's almost like holes, like for as long as the movie, as long as you can see, it's just desert and like a mirage. Like, honestly, if your car breaks down, you're kind of screwed because like, there is no one there, like not even people, like it's just empty, no trees, nothing. And so you drive like that for a long time. And then you see a little tiny, tiny village. And it was just so interesting to me coming from this like super like overwhelming world of like, you know, banking and this and that and college and everyone partying and drinking to this like really remote world, this other side of the world that many of us here don't really see. And so I was like, wow, like, and all the villagers, they just had this, you know, I can't describe it, but this like inner light and joy, almost like a childlike joy for life that I just had not seen that sparked in their eyes. I had not seen anywhere else. And they were doing, all of them were doing different, um, craft. So there's one craft called, you know, woodblock adruck, woodblock printing, where they carve wooden blocks with different, you know, different prints, and they actually stamp that onto fabric. And then there was this one tribe, they were actually living in huts, but in a circle of huts, and they were actually stitching mirrors, like broken mirrors into fabric. And that was the art that I liked the most, because it was like so intricate. And just them living in huts was just so interesting to me. So I took a lot of their fabrics, which were initially tapestries, wall hangings, things like that. None of it was rolls of fabric. It's all little, little squares of fabric. So we bought as much as we could, like thousands of dollars worth. And we didn't know what we were going to do with it. I just wanted it. So we took that fabric and then we go back to the big city in Mumbai. And I spent the next month working with my family tailors and, you know, just kind of thinking about ways to turn them into tops. At that point, I was, you know, it was in my head that I was going to sell these things, but I didn't know what I would do or even if I was creating a brand around it or what. So we ended up making a bunch of different things and like cute little tops, halter tops, tube tops, whatever. And it was very difficult for me to even know if this stuff was like going to fit people because I just like, you know, just made it. And so I took it back to Berkeley and 
I just decided why not make a whole brand around it? And I came up with the name Hot Mentality. I did photo shoots. I had, a, I created a website. I have no experience in coding. I created a website and I just like kind of just decided to throw myself into it and just like put it completely out there despite knowing that the chances of me succeeding were incredibly low because I have no fashion experience, no website design experience, no graphic design experience, nothing. So I did all of that. And then three years later, Hot Mentalities, you know, made it to New York Fashion Week. It's been featured in all these publications and it's what I'm doing now full time. And like, it's like something I never thought my life would end up in. And like, here we are. So... Isha, I can't imagine if you didn't go on that trip to India with your mom over the summer, like none of this would have happened. That's probably one of the greatest coming of age stories <laughs> I've Literally. ever heard. Wow. And it was all honestly because of my intense like depression that I had the summer before. So like when people tell me like, oh, I'm so miserable. I'm doing this major that I don't like, or even on TikTok, I'll see people being like, does anyone else feel like they just aren't doing what they want to do in life? I'm like, that's sometimes the most amazing gift that life can throw at you. Cause like whenever you're dissatisfied with your life, something amazing always comes from it. Cause then you pursue something else. And you said that right just now, you didn't have any gra graphic design experience. You didn't have any coding experience, but with creating a fashion clothing brand, you need to have some sort of, I guess, taste and style and fashion did you have any of did you have a sense of design um for fashion specifically beforehand or was it an acquired skill or was it I don't know was something innate yeah I think my innate creativity is actually in writing and orating or anything related to con using words to connect with people my creativity is always tied to words I love writing it's like my passion and if like I ever take up some other you know passion project you'd probably be like writing something like creative writing but actually the fashion design I I have a good eye for understanding concepts like visually I pick up on things very easily and I can see patterns between fashion designs and styles and and like sometimes certain fashion aesthetics I can see like oh if somebody likes this type of thing I know for sure they're gonna like this and then I know how to make something else like similar but in terms of actual cut silhouette all the technicalities of fashion I owe all of that to my mom because she is actually more so she was like a pottery maker when she was younger and so she's very good at using her hands so her skill in creative she's also very creative her skill comes in with the visual aspect so she's very good at painting she was a painter as well very good at pottery and she understands cuts and silhouettes stuff she also does not have any fashion design experience but between the two of us she's better at that and she also having lived in India understands these prints at a level that I do not because I have to be honest I've grown up here so she understands the way that the fabric moves more because you know the Indian fabrics especially the ones that I used in New York Fashion Week incredibly stiff like and with the dress that you wore too and you modeled for us I'm sure you remember like the fabric is heavy and stiff it's like brocade it's woven it's very hard to manipulate in the way that you want it to you have to work around the fabric you can't have the fabric work around you so a lot of it has been things that I've learned along the way but initially I remember the frustration would be in India for like several summers in a row and I remember we'd be making prototypes after prototypes and they would all turn out bad like in my head it would be the cutest thing ever and I'd get the thing made and then I'd try it on and it just looked like a potato sack on me and I would just cry like, I just like start like just like crying <laughs> it's just so frustrating but you know I'm sure it's really hard um, to experience that because your team is basically remote. It's like you're working here in SoCal 
And then your artists and ladies are, are in, you know, the rural parts of India. And so when a design doesn't work out, I could, I, I mean, I can't imagine what that must feel like. And so I want to talk about your team. You know, it can't just be you and, and, I, and your mom helps out a lot. Um, how many artisans do you work with in total? Right now, very few, currently very few. Our collection size right now is very small too. We basically aren't really making any new things because of the COVID crisis in India, but we have our artisan communities and the main ones that we use are the Udruk, uh block printer. So that's, that's a group of around like four or five men. And they just, uh, we have the guy who runs this little production unit on WhatsApp and he will like send us pictures on WhatsApp. So we communicate with all of them on WhatsApp actually. And they will send us pictures of the fabrics that they have. So some of the fabric artisan prints are way more available than others. For instance, the Udruk block printing that I just talked about, that one is actually very available and we have lots of roles with that. But the mirror work, the ones that I showed at New York Fashion Week is incredibly rare and basically almost next to impossible to get nowadays because of those tribal artisans are very few in number. But we have basically, so those indigenous artisans, the first time we went to the villages, we directly bought from them to, from them. But when we want to buy remotely without actually physically being there, they actually go and they go to local markets where they sell their fabrics at local markets. And those local, you know, villagers, they will have WhatsApp and they send us the fabric. So if we, um, if we procure from them, they are able, then they get more money for that. And so then they go and they actually procure more fabrics from the artisans. What happens is that when with fast fashion and globalization, um, less and less people in India are sourcing these, you know, handmade handicraft fabrics and the demand goes down. And when the demand goes down, the artisans don't have any place to sell their work because no one wants to buy it. So where I come in is I basically am hoping to, as the brand grows, create a lot more demand for these fabrics because the more that I sell, the more that I'm going to buy from them. And just in general, their work is going to get a lot more exposure. So, and then, so after we get the fabrics from them, we actually have a small local team of tailors in Mumbai. Um, so one of them is run by this guy, Ashok. He's like our family. It's about a stone's throw from our house. So we walk down the street and meet him in a shop. And every time I come, he gets so excited because he tells me that I look exactly like his daughter. So he's like really fond of me and we'll FaceTime like often, like sometimes he'll just call my mom and we'll all chat in the mornings and he'll be like, where's Isha? And I'll be in a really crabby mood because I would have just woken up and my hair is all messy. And my mom's like shoving the camera on my face. And I'm just like, stop. Like, <laughs> but like, um, yeah, so he's like an uncle figure to me. That so if anyone's listening right now, know that Isha was basically doing remote work before the pandemic even was a concept. So you've been doing this for a long while. Well, I mean, how is you talked about the COVID situation in deal? How is your team doing? And um, you said that your brand was affected by how you're not making as many pieces. Um, but are there any other COVID effects that ha have been happening on your brand? Yeah, I mean, I think for for one, um, an interesting fact is most of the tailors in India, at least the ones that I work with, they actually live, originally they come from the villages. So they migrate to the cities where they work as tailors. So we met Ashok and his team when we were, um, like when I was living in Mumbai, you know, and Recently, he told us that he's actually gone back to his villages because his village because of COVID. So he's not able to create for us anymore while he's in his village. So it does disrupt. And for him, like as well, you know, he makes his living by having his shop in Mumbai. So 
he said like you know he enjoys going back home he gets to spend time with his family and everything so in a way it's kind of nice for him but it just disrupts the whole you know natural flow of everything because he has to go back to his villages the artisans themselves have been reaching out and they've been saying i think there's a lot more demand for their work when there's more people going to the you know travelers and whatever they go sometimes a few of them are really ones who really go into the rural areas they do buy these people's fabrics but then you know with covid and everything it's less likely for people to do that because any country where there's like covid is like rampant like people aren't going to be traveling there at all so let, they're already in a very re- remote rural place. So for them to have that and then have another layer that's keeping people from seeing them and from going to them is incredibly difficult for them. So um, there are a lot of like online websites and stuff that sell knockoffs of their work as well. Like a lot of people will have these like, like they're like online marketplaces for Indian fabrics and they'll even say the handicrafts are original work or indigenous work or whatever. And then you can tell that it's not, if you're like an expert in these fabrics, you can tell because they use plastic instead of mirror. So yeah. So there's things like that. There's a lot of different things that get, get in the way of the work, but I have my mom actually told me today that the COVID cases are going down now. So I think there was a very big spike and I think now it's starting to go back down again and hopefully they'll continue to go down. Mm, yeah, hopefully it does. Um, how did you handpick and find these particular team members? Well, with I think a lot of it was luck. And I am a very strong believer in, um, this might be like a weird cliche thing of me, but I'm a very strong believer in like fate. So like- I am too. <laughs> right? I talked about this in my previous episode. I, I do as well. Um, Okay, that's amazing. Because sometimes people are like, okay, that's voodoo. And it's very hard for me to explain to people that I do believe in voodoo things because it's like this brand is a testament. Like when I went to India, I had no intention of starting a brand. Yet somehow I left a few months later having like everything having been, I always say like this brand feels like it's been so easy. Knocking on wood. Because like, seriously, like I went to India. I went to this like really rural part in the Northern region of India. Happened to come across like, so many different there was also the ikat which is like a a different type of it's like a a way of weaving those artisans as well as handloom artisans which we've met in Mumbai so ikat handloom adra block printers um mirror work there's so many different artisan groups that I have happened to just come across like I'm literally talking driving into their village like I would have never known that they existed and it just chance meeting they and then they happen to show you their work and then you set up a relationship with them you give them your whatsapp and then you establish this whole connection with them and Ashok our tailor happens to live a stone's throw from me I was walking down the street with my mom we were talking about how we wish we had a tailor who could stitch these fabrics that we had gotten into clothing we walk into the shop into this really really like random so we walk down the street and then you turn like to the left and there's just like little alleyway literally it's a like little tiny alleyway like narrow alleyway you go down the alleyway and then you turn again to the right and it's another little alleyway and he was like in this like really really tiny like nook right and then we walked in there and I remember just like looking around like not thinking I was gonna find anything there and then we see his tailoring shop so we just walk inside and the first thing he says is like oh my gosh you remind me so much of my daughter and I remember that was just like so interesting to me and he like immediately like we had this connection like he felt like family so I think a lot of it is gut culture fit is a big thing they need to have like you know this attitude of like I can't explain it but like the artisans all of them have an amazing attitude but sometimes with the tailors they have this thing where they like 
don't seem like they want to do it. Like they're like lazy about it or they don't, they don't want to, they don't want to make the clothes. They don't want to listen to any feedback. So we'll like, they'll make the clothes and then you'll say, okay, well, actually I don't like it like this. Or can you change this? And then because they're used to making saris or Indian wear, they are like, oh, but he was just so excited to work with us that like, it was just so like nice to have that personality. Oh, well, you, okay. Well, hopefully this brand adventure continues to go swimmingly. I'm going to knock on my wood as well. Um, <laughs> but did, did coming up with the brand name was that easy? That was actually relatively easy too. So I we had come back from India and I was in Singapore with my mom. My dad lives in Singapore. So we were in Singapore. I still remember we were sitting outside and like, it was like in the evening and we were just like drinking coffee and we were thinking of what to name the brand because I was like, okay, like I kind of would think it'd be cool to name, to name it something. And we were saying something hot, hot, hot. And then like mentality, I was like, I just like their mentality. Like I want to share with the world their like, it's not just about their art, it's about their way of life, like how they're this tribe of people who live in a completely different way than everyone else's. They're not being, you know, they're not giving into fast fashion and globalization. They're not living in the cities. They're choosing to live in this remote way. And this way that a lot of people would see as backwards, but I actually think it's admirable and actually am inspired by it and see it as the opposite because how many people can live in a like remote rural place without their phones and their whatever, whatever, and just do art and still create art despite the fact that it's not seen. I think nowadays, a lot of us create for validation. We create in, in like expect with, with the expectation that it will be seen and appreciated by others, but they do not create with that expectation. They create from the joy of creation. So that to me was inspiring, which is why I called it hot mentality. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, as creatives, I always have that feeling. It's like, well, someone has to see it for it to be considered art. But this is also just a good reminder that sometimes art doesn't have to be recognized and directly traced back to you um, as exactly. long as you have fun with that process. Mm-hmm. Well, how have, you make, how have you been making this work? Is this your full-time job or am I wrong? So right now, this is, I consider it my full-time job, but I actually do work freelancing, like as a copywriter as well to make side money. It's like part-time freelancing. Um, And the interesting thing is I was working in LA for a little bit. I quit that job the second my lease got up, like came up and decided to move back home and pursue the brand full-time. And I take up this freelancing thing as well, just so that I can pay for my like gas and like my fun things that I do with my friends but sometimes like even on TikTok and stuff some of the comments are like oh like want to make sure that you're not like profiting off of this and like that you're actually giving to the artisans and that you're not making a bunch of money with from your successes while the artisans are left unpaid or that you're not exploiting them while you make it big and I just like I don't know how to tell people that like I barely up mark because actually marketing wise, you're supposed to like mark up the price of the, of something by like five times the cost, which I do not, I barely make a profit at all. I keep the price so low for how much it costs me that I can't even really take a profit. Half the time I'm selling things almost just to break even right now at this point, and I make a tiny profit and that little profit goes back into the brand into growing the brand. But I buy from them at a fair wage. And I like, don't make money off of this right now. This is something that I'm doing for fun, but I literally am 24 and like living at home. So (laughs) I'm not capitalizing off of this brand 
at all. This is not a capitalistic venture. This is very much my passion project. And someday I would hope that as an artist that it can sustain my living expenses and that I can like live on my own from it. But like, there is really no desire within me to become the next Sophia Amoruso girl boss necessarily from this brand, because to me, it's more of a concept project than a entrepreneurial kind of like money thing, (laughs) you know? So. Well, I want to talk to you about New York fashion week. I want to live vicariously (laughs) through your experiences. (laughs) Tell me how that happened so you went in 2019 or 2019 2019 it was that was a nice year and Mm -hmm. uh, you went to New York last week with uh with one of our friends uh who was your photographer Stephen Mm -hmm. Lee tell me how this entire New York Fashion Week journey happened Yes. So I actually, they reached out to us on Instagram and it was this platform that, that, um, like supports American designers. And basically I think they had seen, I, I've been towards the end of my senior year of college. I had been like, I had felt, I think sometimes you can feel intuitively, like when something that you're doing is growing or about to take off or whatever. I don't know if that mentality has even taken off, but let's use that word, like taken off. I felt like it was going to happen for me. And I remember at that point, I wasn't even going to classes. I was just working on the brand, doing shoots, barely graduated and like literally put all my energy into this brand. And I created a lookbook. I remember me and one of my friends, we went to this coffee shop and we were just sitting there working on this lookbook. So Manasa, if you're listening, so she's a friend of mine that worked for me on, at, um, on Hot Mentality. And so we would just go and create lookbooks on Canva and we were working really hard on the brand, which was funny because at that time the brand was not like that big, but we were taking it very seriously. And I think that energy is what created such great opportunities. You almost have to expect expect it to be big before it is. Um, and we redid the whole website. We repicked a color scheme. We made it like as great as we could. And then someone actually noticed the Instagram pictures of the brand and they were like, Oh my God, like this is really, and I thought it was like a scam at first. So my dad actually had to go through and make sure that it wasn't a scam because it seemed like such a great opportunity. Now, having said that, if there's any like designers who are looking to get a bigger platform or whatever, like listening and maybe you're considering New York fashion week. I personally think given what's happened with COVID and how it's changed the world and how everything functions, I don't know if it's a necessary thing for every fashion designer or every brand for a number of reasons. Number one, I think the fashion industry can be incredibly exploitative of young emerging designers who are hungry for exposure in the sense you have to pay a lot of money for styling pieces. You have to pay for professional photographers. You have to pay for models. Like, you know, the models have to get paid and all of, all of that came from our pockets, the designer's pockets. Um, there's a lot of money that goes into kind of like college. There's a lot of money that goes into just getting an education. And sometimes people come out and they find out they, they didn't even really need it. So with this, it's one of those things, like if you're trying to go into that very artsy, high fashion scene where you have like a few pieces that are like thousands of dollars, then maybe New York Fashion Week is for you. But if you're trying to create a brand that is relatable, that is affordable, maybe affordable luxury, but still affordable, that is um, like something that's more attainable for everybody. New York Fashion Week is not the best because it is not relatable. You know, it's pieces that are so abstract and out there that it doesn't feel every day. 
So for my brand personally, I think it was great for exposure and I think it, it gives the brand a lot of legitimacy, but I don't know if I'm going to do it again because I think it's sometimes it's like these little rituals in fashion, like having people walking down a runway and extravagant in clothing. It's almost seems a little unnecessary when you're really just trying to get exposure, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm assuming your exposure did work after New York Fashion Week. What was your response after attending that entire event? So actually that, that there was a lot, I do have to give credit. There was definitely a lot of, um, a lot of people reaching out in the weeks and months after being like, oh my gosh, like people from publications and just different people who had seen celebrity stylists, especially Indian celebrity stylists and like just even when we posted the pictures on Instagram, the, the reach of those pictures increased so much. And the footage that we got from your fashion week has, has allowed us to use that in so many promotional, con- so much promotional content. So I think, yeah, it, it was great. And there was definitely a lot of people who reached out and were really interested in the brand, but to anyone who's listening, who maybe might not have the money or the connections or something, you know, like to, to feel like, to be able to reach New York Fashion Week, I don't want them to get dissuaded and feel like it's a necessary step to having made it in fashion because I don't think it it is. I think there's a lot of elitism or something like that with platforms like New York Fashion Week where sometimes it's like this unnecessary thing that just makes, that feels exclusive, you know? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of entry points to show your work and for example, a lot of people are going on TikTok right now to promote their brand. Okay, also, it's just a crazy platform. Like, I was reading the Orange County Register today. Oh, I sound like a 70-year-old man. I was reading the <laughs> Orange County Register today, and the headline, the breaking news headline was that 150 people got arrested at Huntington Beach today because a viral TikTok party invitation or something got out of hand. And so all of these people came to Huntington Beach to party. Adrian, the Adrian guy. <laughs> the Adrian guy? I have, to, I have to search that up. Well, speaking about TikTok, it's a very smart way of promoting your brand, spectacular designs. And you have, a, you have quite the solid presence on TikTok in addition to Instagram as well. And I want to bring up one of your most recent TikToks. It has over... 107,000 views. I checked this morning has over 100,000 views. In the video, someone bring you're responding to a question that someone poses. And they ask, why do you put white people in our clothes? Um, Usually everyone gets on pins and needles when it comes to the discussion of like, appropriation versus appreciation. Well, tell me what your reaction was like to that question. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was a very tumultuous period because like I am not like I've always thought I'm too small to be like canceled or to like have my opinion even like matter like so like I'll say what I say and then people are like okay like the brand has never even been controversial in my opinion and then I get on TikTok and I just made this video I didn't know it was gonna get like seen by so many people because it just happens all of a sudden sometimes and like I had like 4,000 5,000 followers before I made the video I just thought it was gonna go to my followers and I thought it was gonna make them stop being so annoying because like basically um, the brand, as you know, is very, very POC, not just POC, like mi- mixed POC, POC dominated. I do make it a point to make the majority of people who wear the clothes POCs, because I think the brand should be representative of multicultural people. I wanted to encompass like 
people like American, like Indian American or Asian American. Like I wanted to encompass people who feel like they belong to two different cultures. Um, but part of, you know, growing something and having now, I don't, I wouldn't want to call myself an entrepreneur in that kind of like capitalistic necessarily sense, but part of being like an entrepreneur or creator of something is from a purely like business point of view, if you put a lot of effort into creating something to sell, it doesn't make sense to exclude a certain group of people from buying the clothes, first of all. Second of all, that's not how I live with anything. I don't like to exclude. It doesn't matter what the race is. Now, I get there's a lot of anger against white people. And I think what it is, is that basically at New York Fashion Week, we were not allowed to pick our models. And we had eight models and six of them were uh, black and Asian and Afro-Latina, I think. And then there was two who were white. So to me, that was great because I was like six out of eight are, are POC and then two white girls, that's fine, you know? And I showed the runway clips and no one really said anything, but a couple weeks later, as I started posting more content, I would get a lot of people commenting like our clothes or something like, oh, like love to see like our clothes in fashion or this and that, which at first I didn't think much of. I always thought it was weird how they were saying our, but then someone commented on the New York Fashion Week TikTok, which was also pretty successful. And they commented saying, why'd you put white people in our clothes though? And that's when I got mad because I said, not only are you calling it ours, which is something that I have created in collaboration with these artisans, but now you're actually dictating who I can sell to and who I can't sell to just because we belong to the same ethnicity. And that to me is gatekeeping, which I get. I think gatekeeping is important when you are gatekeeping your culture from someone who does not belong to it. So if a white person had come to India and created a brand with artisans and then had gone back and made this thing and had white models, predominantly white models, incredibly pro problematic, incredibly appropriatory, and that person is not representing their own heritage. I am representing my dual identity as an Indian American. I'm not making traditional garbs or costumes. I'm making original designs that have never existed before and which are not traditional in Indian. In India, nobody wears a mini dress in India. <laughs> So like that, as well as the fact that even if it's white or black or whoever wears the clothes, they buy from me and they directly help the artisans. So it is a direct, they're directly, you know, supporting artisans with their purchase. So I made that video in response to that comment. And I thought that, I think where I went, where I think that where that video got controversial was I was defending the designs as mine and not the cultures because I had created the designs. And they were saying that it was the cultures and they said the designs would have been nothing if it wasn't for our fabrics. So in my second TikTok that I made that actually blew up more than the first one, I basically said the designs are mine and the fabrics are not mine or yours. They're the artisans. The fabrics do not belong to any culture. They belong to the hands that have created them. You have to give the artisans the individuality that they are due. You have to respect their individual role as artists in their own right. They're not just part of the culture. They're individual people who have created this and we have to credit them. So then I did that. And then people still have a problem and people are still, I mean, overall, the majority <laughs> of the responses have been positive. But if you scroll down to the bottom, there's people who are like, well, what are their names? And why don't you include more pictures of them? Or if they were, if you were really supporting them, why do they still live in the huts? What they don't realize is that these artisans do not want to live in big cities. They don't want to live in huge homes. They have been living in the same way of life that their ancestors have been living in. They are, they want to keep their way of life. And I think it's incredibly um, 
condescending for someone to come in and assume that just because this artisan lives in a rural part and lives in a hut that they are living in a in, in complete poverty. They are living in poor for sure. They are in poverty, but that they are they are in desperate need of something. No, they're not in need of anything. They they want their their craft to sustain. They want money for their work. They want demand for their work, but they don't want saviors. They don't need mm-hmm. saviors, you know. And there was a lot of saviorism coming in there. People dictating. Like, oh, you should say her name and this and that. If I asked her her name, she wouldn't want to tell me her name. That's her privacy. She she allowed me to take her picture. I asked her for permission for me to post her pictures wherever I wanted to. And she said, yeah, for sure. But she wouldn't want me to keep coming back and giving her, you know, more profits of the thing and whatever she wants. She, she's literally said, the artisans have literally said, once you buy from us, what you do with the fabric is up to you. You do whatever you want to do. We don't care. Just buy from us. That's it. Whatever. In fact, they don't even really care if I were to even credit them for the fabrics. I think it's necessary to do, but all they really want is just to sustain their craft. And one of the artisans I asked, actually the little girl I asked um, what she wanted in her greatest wish. And she literally said was to have enough money to get water from the well nearby to make it easier so she wouldn't have to walk or have enough money so she'd get water and she wouldn't have to walk as far to the well. And she also wanted more people to know about the craft But generally speaking, they as individuals don't want to be put on a pedestal and they don't want the fame because the concept of like fame from something or like artists receiving recognition is a very Western concept. Like how here we're all obsessed with fame. A lot of people in these indigenous parts of the world, they don't need like everybody's eyes on them, you know? Mm-hmm. So the reason I included the pictures was to defend myself, but I don't want to be putting up pictures of them everywhere because that's not respecting what they want. They they don't need pictures everywhere. They they were happy to take those few pictures with me and to have the pictures that I do have of them up. But I cannot be making this brand like poverty porn where I go around, you know, posting pictures of these artisans like unless they ask for it. I can't just do that. It's just a lot of mixed messages online that everyone's everyone's objectives of what they think the brand's goal is is so different. So you were saying how everyone is like, you have to credit them. But then that's mm-hmm. obviously different from these artisans. Their goal is to is to just make the fabric and to have fun and to, you know, sell their fabric. And also people are definitely very hypersensitive on a social media presence as well. Um, I say that because I think of an example how so this is an example between uh steven and i <laughs> the our, you know our mutual friend our photographer um extraordinaire he I, I like tagging him in posts on instagram and you know steven if you know him he will buy like turtlenecks 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 will keep buying turtlenecks like that's basically his staple wardrobe item and one time i saw this um hand-knit turtleneck it looked really cute and i tagged him and i was like hi oh, like steven you should totally wear this this is so you and then steven he replied and he was like i'm a cop this but then he looked at the price of the sweater he's like uh just kidding it's not copable and then this <laughs> it's like this sweater social justice warrior swoops into our comment section and she was like i can't believe you guys are not giving her credit for all the work that she put into making the sweater and then i responded and i was like no it's just too expensive (laughs) that's an example of how anything can get twisted even like what the fuck (laughs) yeah and then we started messaging each other we're just like 
we had no idea how to respond to this lady. But I did respond to her and I was like, hi, I think you must have misunderstood. We really love this design. And I think this woman, this gal is, is amazingly talented. But, you know, we, we can't afford that sweater because it's a bit pricey. And so. Um, what did I, she say? Was she like, okay, she, or nothing? She did not respond. So oh, <laughs> I guess my I, God. I closed the conversation there. Um, I want to play your second, the TikTok that you brought up. It has almost 200,000 views and you are responding to the comment. What was the comment? Oh, your designs aren't original. Okay, let's give it a little play and then we can chat further about it. So in my last video, many of you accused me of copying Indian mirror work, which I haven't. I've gone to the most remote places in India and sourced directly from the artisans themselves. For example, the fabric on this dress was made by this woman who lives in this hut. And this is actually the cradle where her baby sleeps. And this fabric was woven by this woman. So the prints do not belong to us. They belong to her and her. The prints belong to the individual artisans behind each piece and not to the culture or any of us who are part of it, myself included. Now, many of you will say, well, in your last video, you said the designs belong to you. And I stand by that. There's a difference between textile design and fashion design. Textile design involves the fabric's print. And fashion design involves the actual cut, silhouette, style, etc., of the garment. So I design the garments and they design the prints. Now, I've shown the artisans these runway images and they are just so proud to see their work on a global stage. They absolutely love people of all races wearing their fabrics. They just want to feed their families and sustain their craft. So please let me do that. Do you get those comments a lot saying that your designs aren't original? I, before TikTok, I really had not gotten that comment. But then again, I don't think people, I know like Gen Z is very much about like, oh my God, like TikTok or die, like Instagram sucks. Personally, this might be like late because I'm like cusp of Gen Z and millennial. I think that Instagram people tend to have a little bit more etiquette because their personal profiles are usually tied into it. And with TikTok, there's a lot more people who just have accounts and don't have any videos. But on Instagram, it's like everyone generally speaking has like something like some sort of picture or something. So like they're, they're less likely to be like mean. Right. But like on Instagram, I haven't had any ever in the three years that I've grown this brand. I never had anyone leave any hate comments I did have sometimes people commenting um responding to stories being like wait so what ethnicity are you as the founder so I had to say well I'm Indian so they were like okay okay because I think sometimes people are like they have an issue with like white girls coming into India and like making these bohemian inspired brands it's very appropriatory and I have a problem with it as well because it's like allow space for creatives Indian people to represent their own heritage don't come here on like a tourist trip and like take and, and, and profit off of something that isn't your culture you know what I mean like that's annoying to me so you know on Instagram and stuff like no one ever said that but on TikTok I after I made the first video I got so many people being like oh my god like all you did is slap our fabrics onto all our fabrics onto a jacket and like say that it's like so original like your designs aren't even that great if it wasn't for the fabric your designs would be nothing it's just a basic dress with nothing um you've taken our fabric and just like put it over some some random skirt like lots of things like that what people don't realize is that the fabric that I used at New York Fashion Week was not um I actually wrote something in response to this and I didn't get in enough time to say this on, um, to say this on TikTok, but I want to read it now. 
Yes. Yeah, I can, I can read it to you. I think this response was like, ugh, I wish I had the time to say it, but basically, um, Okay, so now many of you have said that, the, that these designs are not original and that I have just stitched two pieces of cloth together. To that I say, original art is about taking something existing and giving it new meaning and perspective. In this case, the fabric on this, and I was gonna show corset top, the fabric on this corset top was once a tapestry that I reconstructed into a top. So the point that I was trying to make was that people assume that I got this fabric in rolls. And sometimes when you have fabric that's available in rolls and rolls and rolls, yeah, I'm sure you can make it whatever you want. But this fabric, first of all, is incredibly difficult to work with and cut into because it has mirrors all over it. So you can't just cut it up. No, you can't. You have to expertly like look around the shape, figure out how to do it. And you design around the fabric. Once again, like I said before, so the, this fabric was actually originally wall hangings, pot holders, even doormats. So I think it's very dismissive of the creative process for someone to say that because the fabrics are so center stage, to just completely take away my role in um, creating something out of something else. It's like seeing a rug and turning it into a top. Now that rug might have had an exquisite print. It might've been the most interesting, colorful rug ever. And it's beautiful. And we should talk about the rug, talk about the artist behind the rug, talk about the craft and how the rug was made. But at the end of the day, you also shouldn't delegitimize or undervalue the designer's role in turning that rug into a top. So I think the artisans deserve credit as well. But I think in, in saying that, a lot of people were being incredibly abusive of, about the work that I did. But in the second video, I didn't even want to, like, I'm not really asking for much here. I don't even really think I need to, to say this much. And I don't want to keep reiterating it because once again, this brand is not like my little ego project I need to check my ego and that was an, a big lesson that I learned is like if I keep trying to defend like my role or like make it about me like that's never going to help the brand grow and it isn't about me really it isn't like I know what role I've played I know that my work was difficult and I know that it's difficult to create these designs out of these fabrics and I know that that it's that it takes a lot of creativity to do what I've done. I don't need to go around telling people that because if they don't want to believe it, they don't want to believe it. If they're interested in it for the artisan and not the design, great. That's That helps the artisan. So I think it was a great lesson for me to have smaller ego. <laughs> mm -hmm. When you talked about uh, defending your brand's designs and still being open for different types of people to wear the clothes, it, it reminds me of... For example, um, there was one travel vlog that I watched maybe a year or two ago by one of my favorite uh, YouTubers. She goes to to India, and um, in India, it's you can wear like traditional saris, and people are like, "Oh, that's cult that's cultural appropriation. You can't wear the clothes." But then she explained in the video, it's like, "Oh, like these vendors, they were asking us like, yo, you can wear these clothes.' Or in Korea." You can rent like a traditional hanbok or in China, you can rent like a chipaw, a silk dress. So I, I, I think it, it also comes to the, I guess the creator allows it. And, and in, in this case, you do. But I don't think a lot of people know that, especially online. What do you think? I mean, I think I understand where one girl actually said this in a comment and her comment got a lot of likes. And she said this in the second video that I made where... She was like, 
thank you so much for explaining your designs are great, but I do understand where Indian people were coming from. She's a Desi people were coming from because um, our culture out of everyone has been exploited a lot, specifically in fashion, because mm -hmm. you find this whole bohemian clothing trend that has originated yeah. from Indian fabrics, free people, anthropology, oof, my God, like literal knockoffs off of Indian work like free people actually does this mirror work thing too but they do fake like you know factory made um so and she said but I think they wrongly accused you and like basically I think I give full permission and I actually encourage people of all races not just white people any anybody to buy hot mentality now some Indian people do not agree with me allowing everyone to wear the clothes and their gatekeeping and I've responded and I've said well technically it's my designs and it's my brand so I can allow whoever I want to wear it and then they say well no it's our designs because it belongs to our culture and I'm like no <laughs> so you're taking credit for the three years that I created this brand you were off doing whatever you didn't know about this brand you just discovered this brand two minutes ago and now all of a sudden you have a say in who buys it so I think the gatekeeping is ridiculous because we are POCs in general, like I'm just going to refer to Indian people right now, like us as a community in America, in the West, we have not made a full kind of integration in the sense that we don't find, you don't find Indian American or Indian celebrities that are, have reached global audiences other than Mindy Kaling and Priyanka Chopra. So that's only two, <laughs> literally, and maybe like Dave Patel and Aziz Ansari, but like not really big ones. And you don't find too many clothing brands that are Indian inspired, which are run by Indian people. They're oftentimes white owned. You don't find a lot of like, like Indian people, like making it big by taking, by representing their own culture and their own heritage in the way that other Indian people would like to see. So I think that for that to happen, we have to stop attacking each other for the little nuances in how we run things. Like for the most part, they agree with what I'm doing. They just don't like the fact that I let white people wear the clothes, but they should look at it and say, well, she's an Indian girl making, representing Indian heritage with Indian artisans. She's selling to everybody. She's helping this brand grow. Ultimately she could put, you know, make free people and all like seem problematic. She could call out, she could show people how these other brands are actually appropriatory by, by way of example. So let's support her. No, instead they want to criticize the fact that I allow white people to wear the clothes. And it's just, that's where, where I don't like the gatekeeping because it ultimately harms us as a group more than it benefits us you know like we're already oppressed we've already faced oppression and colonization the last thing we need to be doing is oppressing each other and gatekeeping each other we need to be working in unity you know mm -hmm. and um these gatekeeping comments will probably keep coming in they'll keep trickling in so but i mean if there's something i guess like a silver lining that could be found in this um, gatekeeping aspect is that you could get more exposure online, more people want to buy your clothes. I don't know. Let's hope that that happens. Do you think after more controversy, like people have reached out? Yeah, I had um, some big TikTok creators following the page, you know, following me personally. Like, I don't know how they know my Instagram, personal Instagram, but following me personally and, you know, 
following the hot mentality TikTok. I've just recently collaborated with this, or I'm sending her pieces. So we're going to collaborate, but this really big, I think like the biggest um, Indian fashion TikTok star, this, <gasps> name, this girl, Tanya, she's so cool. She has like red, like frosted tip, like red hair. She's like punky. She's the coolest style ever. Like I absolutely love her style. And I have been like fangirling over her for Ever. Like I would see her TikTok and be like, I want to be her. This girl is so cool. And then she followed us and she, and she reached out and asked to collaborate. And I was like, oh my God, this is my dream coming true. So ultimately a lot of it has been really, really great. And I think there's been a lot of orders. I mean, right now I don't really have any inventory. So if I did have inventory, I, I would suspect that I'd have a lot of orders, but even from the little inventory that I have that's left, those things have sold. Um, I'm just thinking like, if I had a shop full of things when this video came out, everything would have been sold out by now. But just because mm -hmm. I don't have inventory, it hasn't. But I think something like this is actually good for brand growth because it's like you open a discussion, you're not problematic, you're not, you're not, you're, you're defending your own beliefs. And ultimately, those beliefs that you have are good and for equality and for, and you're explaining your brand. And People can disagree or agree, but the ones who agree are going to agree and follow you and buy things from you. And that's ultimately what you want. What do you think is some of the advice that you've gained from your business? And what advice would you give for, for just young, aspiring creatives, young women who want to, who are, who are scared of starting their own brand? Like I was freaking scared of starting this podcast, but all I have to do is just speak into a mic and you have to travel to rural North India and work with these <laughs> designers and come back and then make the, I, yeah. So how, what, what is some of your advice? Um, I would say that there's a lot, and this is something that I'm really struggling with right now, because I think I've kind of fallen into a little bit of this trap right now that maybe I'm slowly getting out of with this TikTok that's forcing me to get out of, but, um, we fall into these like little bubbles in life. I think where everything is very comfortable as it is. And we are so inspired by this greater version of ourselves. We envision this version of ourselves who's doing this podcast and doing this brand or becoming a model or singer or whatever it is that people want to do, right? Big dreams that they have. You have this vision of yourself doing it, but then between where you currently are and that person who has accomplished all those things you dream of, that ideal version of yourself, there are all these things, these steps in between where you could fail. And that fear of failure, that fear of, of trying and then failing and knowing that you gave it your all and still failed, that fear actually keeps a lot of us from even trying in the first place. So I think with Hot Mentality, a big thing that I always tell myself, I don't know where I got this like advice. The worst thing is looking back on your life and just having felt apathetic towards things because you were afraid that if you tried it, you would fail. So for anyone who doesn't have any experience or feels like there's a hundred people who are better than them. Or even sometimes with things like modeling and stuff, like there's so many like things that people are like, oh, like I'm short or I'm this, like I'm five, five and I was on Quicksilver. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's so many random things that you can just do without ever having expertise. So it's like, if you want to do something, you just do it, you know? Mm -hmm. So great way to end off our interview before we officially end. I like to do some rapid fire questions for our, for our guests. I have 10 questions for you. So this, this better okay. be stream of conscious stream of conscious for you. All right. <laughs> Number one, what was your favorite childhood snack? 
Um, this thing called Fudafut, it's actually a digestive pill that you're supposed to eat, like to help you poop. Um, it's not over the counter, <laughs> but <laughs> look it up. If you spell it F A F A T A F A T, it's called Fudafut. And the outside is this like candy, like, like, like kind of sweet candy. The inside is very sour. I would go through like 20 packs in a day. And one time my cousin found me sitting in the closet eating, like I'd eaten literally like 20 packs. And he just turns to me and he goes, you're going to have the worst shits of your life. <laughs> I was about to ask. I was like, your digestive system was just, it was a, a constant machine. <laughs> okay. And as a kid, I would always lose so much weight whenever I went to India. Like I would go to India and come back and my friends would be like, Isha, you got, and I was always really skinny as a kid, but like, I would come back extremely skinny. And I think it was because the, these butterfoot, whatever was giving me like a tapeworm or some shit. Like oh. I was just like stupid all the time. Oh goodness. <laughs> um, hopefully you're not eating as much of it right now. I actually it's like can't during... find it anywhere. So <laughs> it's like during this interview, you just like, Oh God, go to the bathroom. <laughs> Literally. Oh my God. That, that was a fun first question. Okay. Second, sort of related to our interview. What is a fashion trend you absolutely despise? Mm, okay. A fashion trend that I absolutely despise is those like Pinterest girl aesthetics that seem to just keep recycling. It's not a specific trend. There's avant-garde, archive fashion, all of these like weird, there's even the coconut girl aesthetic, which is like now Aloha prints. Every two weeks, there is a new trend. And then people go to thrift stores and they try to get things. At least they're going to thrift stores. But still, it's wasteful because they go to thrift stores. They get these fabrics that fit these trends or they get clothes that fit these trends. And they're like micro trends. And they wear it for like a month or like summer or whatever. Like a lot of these summer dresses that are trendy right now are going to go out of style by winter. They get that stuff. And then they just like don't know what to do with it after. And then they give it back to goodwill or whatever and it's just like it's like this process that I mean I, I guess ultimately they're recycling it but I think a lot of brands and stores are also profiting off of this by creating stuff that fits these micro trends that look like they're thrift store pieces but aren't thrift store pieces and there's this whole culture of like micro trends and like people buying things and then like giving it back to thrift stores and then buying things giving it back at thrift stores but we just need to just like simplify and have like in my opinion capsule collections where we have a few pieces that we love that resonate not with trend, but who we are and who we hope to look like as people. And then we just wear those for like a year at least. That's true. There's a lot. Yeah. I, I, a lot of people think I could just go and thrift as much as I want, but then not everything gets sold in a thrift store, but okay. That's, that's another conversation for later. (laughs) Third question. Here is a fill in the blank in a different life. If I weren't doing what I do now, I would want to be a blank. And I'll share mine. Um, Novelist or creative writer. I love the concept of just, this is my, okay. I have this vision in my head. Don't ask me where I get this from, but (laughs) I have this vision in my head. I am, okay. When I close my eyes and think of this and I, this always comes to me. So I'm like 30 something years old. I'm single. I'm wearing like a silk white dress. I'm sitting in Greece in, it's like five or 6 PM. I'm sitting in Greece. I have a cigarette. Don't ask me why I have a cigarette, but I have a cigarette and a glass of wine and I'm writing a novel because I'm a famous writer who has escaped this, to this like remote country town or whatever, like countryside or I guess Oceanside. And I'm sitting there and I'm writing my like next big novel right before I go for like dinner by myself, like in that village in Greece. Ooh, basically <laughs> like get cast. Sisterhood of the tribal pants. 
get cast in Mama Mia 3. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> like that vibe, that vibe. You share. <laughs> I, I, I thought about this question. I would either want to be, I would love to be a drummer or an electric guitarist or an interior designer with my mom. And then we'd have like our own HGTV show. <laughs> oh, wait, that is so cute. Love you. Yeah, it's like you like work with, with your mom, mom. too. <laughs> working with your mom is so fulfilling because if you have a good relationship with your mom it's it's like like if you're doing it with a if you're doing a business with a friend like it's kind of hard to like get into like because it's like you get into fights and then it's bad but with my mom like we get into fights all the time it's like by like lunchtime we're laughing about something because it's like Mm. we're family yeah that is true (laughs) so those are my three wishes or like a tap dancer i don't know anyways there's so many things that we wish we could do (laughs) um Number four, do you drink enough water? This is an intervention. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> You're hesitating. <laughs> I really, so I have really bad eczema and I actually mm-hmm. have to go to the dermatologist recently because my eczema is so bad. And I think part of it has to do with me not drinking enough water, but I kid you not, I definitely make it a point to drink at least six glasses if not eight a day where I mess up is in the daytime in between I drink a lot of coffee and I don't drink water in between so but I drink like I glug water in the morning and I glug at night like if I if I've drank in like three glasses of water the whole day I will drink like six glasses at night I'll just like drink it all in one sitting I'm just checking in on you (laughs) (laughs) this is the next question what is the last thing you did before our podcast interview I just changed out of um, this corset top because I was taking photos uh, in some of the new corset tops that I have that I'm planning on putting on Instagram and on the website and we just did a little photo shoot. And then I quickly changed out to do this podcast. That's fun. Next question. Three things you would want to have if you're stranded on an island. Okay, so my phone, because then if there isn't Wi-Fi, I'd want to look at pictures. a book, preferably either The Alchemist or um, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, or just a completely fiction novel that like, but then I would get bored after reading it several times. Um, and then my dog. <laughs> what Hogwarts house are you in? Um, Dumbledore? Dumbledore? That's not a house, Isha. That's a <laughs> <laughs> that is a, you're either like a Hufflepuff, Slytherin, Ravenclaw, Gryffindor. Gryffindor. You're a Gryffindor? Are, are you sure? I'm going to ask you again. Are you actually a Gryffindor? Gryffindor is good, right? So wait, you have to take there's like an online official sorting hat test and then you get placed in one. So you should probably find that out after this interview. <laughs> oh, my God. If you put me in Slytherin, I'm going to be so mad. I feel like they would. <laughs> but it's like you're very cunning. I was a Gryffindor when I was when I took the test in middle school and I retook it again maybe two years ago and they put me in Ravenclaw. So I was like, oh, I might be like a little little mix of both. But anyways, take the test after this interview. Um, I should next, take it. Next question. A fictional character you would want to have dinner with? Um, fictional character I'd want to... Okay, I don't read too many fiction books, but probably we're gonna be from a tv show or a movie too okay why is nothing coming to mind right now (laughs) oh 
probably the, the main character in the namesake. Oh, okay. Oh, or Coraline from I love Coraline. Oh, Coraline is my favorite movie. Oh, oh my, but maybe Coraline like before she, you know, passes to the other yeah. worlds. Like oh, just like yeah, regular. Yeah, that was a lot. Okay, the ninth question, second to last. What is a pet peeve you have? Also share mine as well. Um, a pet peeve I have. I think sometimes I have a problem with. I think some of people don't believe that, and I might be guilty. I think I'm guilty of this myself, and I need to to change. But I do witness it with other people, which is like, there is enough like success and abundance to go around for everybody. Technically, like there is no limit. Like there's no abundance god that's like, hey, listen, that's enough abundance. The rest of you don't get any. Like you know what I mean? Like there's not like the possibilities of achieving success is limitless for every single person on this planet. Technically. But there seems to be this really weird perception that people have when they see someone else succeeding and achieving good things where they almost inherently, the first intuitive feeling is like, that person like succeeded. Now it's taken from my pool, which is not the case. There's no physical, possible, abstract, nothing correlation between that person's success and your lack of it, right? There's no abundance gatekeeper. (laughs) There's no abundance gatekeeper. And- it's almost like with the, with these TikToks, sometimes I, I'm almost wondering if there's a little component of that where I don't I don't want to I, I don't want to assume anything, but like some people were so hateful for no reason that I almost I'm like, where is your anger coming from? I feel like it's not just the video. Like there's like this like weird energy sometimes with some people, not like very few people. Most most people are really great. Most of them are. Very, very, very few number of people whose comments I saw, which I shouldn't even be looking at those comments because I shouldn't even be reading all of the comments. I should just like turn off the negative the negativity but some of the comments I would see I was like people were just being like so hateful of like not only like this but like your designs are ugly and stuff and I'm thinking like well now I'm gonna say that maybe I think you might be a little bit bitter cynical and potentially a little jealous so (laughs) you know that is a really deep answer I was expecting more um I just don't like it when people don't close the door behind. But, uh, that, but that's a great answer. That is a fantastic answer. Because my answer is, I don't like it when people sneeze and then they don't cover their mouth with their elbow. And it irks me even more when they cover their mouths with their hands. And I'm like, oh, yeah, and they yeah, like yeah, yeah. touch a doorknob afterwards and they like touch you instead. And then me seeing that, I'm just like, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Take yeah, me yeah, away. Ooh, that, no, I don't like that. Yeah, I always... My first intuitive thing is always like to do that. Yeah. Final question. I I know you sort of answered this, um, but then if there's another response, if there's another response, that'd be great. Who is someone you would absolutely love for them to model or wear your clothes? And there's no limit to this answer, Isha. Dream in abundance. (laughs) So Avon Jogia actually does follow Hot Mentality, which is amazing. He discovered our brand through... um, one of my friends who modeled like back in Berkeley and she's like a very big environmentalist, like very successful. Um, so he was following her because she's like, has really great points. And then I think he saw hot mentality and, and through her and then he followed and asked to collaborate. And so that was like a couple of years ago now, like two years ago. And he still follows us and we still like, like each other's pictures and whatever, but we have not collaborated <laughs> and I need to make it happen. So that would be a dream because like Beck, 
in Victoria's Beck was like my biggest crush. Like I was obsessed with Beck. And I was just so happy to see like an Indian guy like on a Disney Channel show in a represented in a way that wasn't like gross. Like most of the time, the way they show Indian people is so it's a hate crime. Like they're literally like, oh my God, like they don't ever show Indian people like in a positive aspirational light at all. Or like the cute guy or the pretty popular girl, never Indian, never. So they did that with Victorious with Avon Jokia, which was so amazing. And I was so happy to see that. And then for him to follow, for, for him to follow the brand and, and support the brand is so great. Cause he is one of, he's like a bigger Brown celebrity. Um, so him, I also think it'd be really great to have um, like, you know, Mindy Calling and some of these other Brown creators, Rupi Kaur, the poet would be great out of the Brown people. Um, now in terms of non-Brown people, I would love, I mean, dream client. I don't know how realistic this is, but like someone like Zendaya would represent the brand <gasps> so well. Dude, that would be so cool. Because I feel like she oh would support the cause so much. <laughs> Can you imagine so, if she wore I just saw like that? a flash image of her wearing her clothes. That just gave me chills. Look at it. How do I make it happen? I need to make it happen. Oh my gosh. Well, <gasps> hopefully it does. I hopefully it does. Okay. Now I'm just now I'm getting so heated. Yeah. And then lastly, now she is less of like a big political activist, or I mean she is a political activist, but she's less of the ideal target consumer but i i do think that like bella hadid is a style icon so just because of her fashion sense and because she is an activist in, in the sense like you've seen how much she supports palestine and she's just like so woke in terms of like political causes as opposed to like kendall jenner at least out of all of those supermodels like that supermodel plan she's probably the one that i resonate with the most so she would be great um but i think just yeah like Black celebrities, Asian celebrities, 110%. I would love to see them in my clothes to represent POCs through the clothes. You know, like by wearing the clothes, I feel like it would really embody that like pride in being a person of color and having a different culture than like the American culture or something like that. Wow, these are big names. These are big names. And uh, you never know when that DM is going to come in or. <laughs> oh my God. Imagine I would die. Well, before, before we leave, uh, where can we follow and support your business? Uh, feel free to drop your socials. Okay. So you can follow hot mentality on Instagram at hot mentality, H U T mentality on TikTok. We're the same website is hotmentality.com, Facebook, hot mentality, Twitter, hot mentality. I'm really surprised the name hot mentality was not taken at all. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've, I'm so happy with, you know, all of your achievements. And you just said today that you're working on a collaboration with someone. And so big things happening. And I'm so glad that I met you through Steven and um, Me too. I've been able to see like this journey that you've taken. And I hope it, you know, continues mm -hmm. to spiral into something that's even bigger. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful too. And honestly, I was so touched when you said, you know, when you reached out and you said you wanted to talk with me because like, I think tunnel vision, like I think of my journey and it feels, it's easy to always feel like you're failing or like you're not doing enough. And then like, and then for someone to say like, well, you're doing such a great job. Like we actually want to hear about your story and stuff. It's like a reminder that like I can pause and like, and commend the work that's been done already. And that like, it is successful 
where it stands, regardless of whether it continues to grow. So that was a really big reminder when you reached out. So um, yeah, I've been really, this was a really great talk and I'm really happy I got to share my insights. And I think constantly bringing these things up also is great for me to feel reminded of my initial purpose and my cause. And, and it really does fuel my creative process. So I agree. I think especially during the pandemic, it's sometimes you think that, oh, so many people are doing other great things and I'm just sitting at, by myself. That's exactly what I thought. Um, but if you look back and when I look back and see what I've done over the past, over my past four college years, I, dang, I, I did a good amount. I did a good amount. I did, I did a lot. And, um, although there are so many other things that I wish I could have done, like we, we agreed at the beginning of this interview, like everything really does happen for a reason. That's what we both truly believe in. And so, so many of these skills you can learn as well as you go. We are lifelong learners. As you said, you don't have any graphic design experience. You know, you don't have any, you know, coding experience, but you kind of just did that along the way. This is also just a really great reminder to myself and to anyone listening. It's like, you're, you can continue to grow and then, but you can also sit back and acknowledge all that you've done already. So it's been so great talking to you, Isha. Thank you again for joining yeah, me. You too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Happy Hour. If you liked this episode, please feel free to share this podcast online. And don't forget to give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more Happy Hour exclusive information, follow us on Instagram at Happy Hour. That's H-A-A-P-I-H-O-U-R. If you have any potential guests you want featured on the show, send us an email at happyhourpodcast at gmail.com. That's H-A-A-P-I-H-O-U-R-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. I'm Melissa Cho. Thank you for spending happy hour with me and my guest today, and I'll see you for another round very soon.